This episode is brought to you by the Why Do We Say That podcast. Have you ever wondered why we say things like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater or rule of thumb? Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. Check out the Why Do We Say That podcast every Tuesday to learn the etymology and history behind everyday words and sayings. This podcast is hosted by a father and son who explore the interesting originations of things that we say every day and probably have no idea why. During season two, they are playing the world famous game show, What Word Am I? So check out the Why Do We Say That podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that change them forever. Welcome to the third episode of season six, and we're going to do something a little bit different this time. We're going to cover a very infamous Midwestern story. This is the story of BTK, the victims of Dennis Rader. Chris, have you heard of BTK? Yes, I know who he is. Now, I don't know the story like like you guys do and stuff like that, but I do know who he is, and I've heard of him. So, at least I've had that. Okay. Well, we're going to... Get right into it. On January 15th, 1974, 15-year-old Charlie Otero uh, returned home from school to find his dog outside. So this was weird because his dog was never outside by itself. Um, As he entered his house, he found two of his four younger siblings, and they were worried. They said, you know, Charlie, we're so glad you're home because there's something wrong with mom and dad. Charlie went and found his father, Joseph Otero, and his mother, Julie Otero, dead. They had been bound, and it was very clear this was not like an accidental death or anything like that. It was very clear they had been murdered. Charlie called the police, and as the police were in the house, he started to get really worried because his 11-year-old sister, Josie, and 9-year-old brother, Joseph Jr., he didn't think they were home from school yet, and he really didn't want them to come home with his parents' bodies in the house. Right. So he was really worried about that. And that's when police told him that he didn't need to worry about that because the bodies of Joseph Jr. and Josie were found dead inside the house. Can I just say that that's like one of the shittiest ways to find out that your parents are dead? Mm-hmm. Is like two of your younger siblings coming up to him be like, there's something wrong with mom and dad. They're not moving. Right. Right. Four members of the Otero family had been brutally murdered. This brutal crime would be the first of several that would strike fear in the hearts and souls of residents of Wichita. This crime would mark the beginning of the serial killer BTK's three-decade reign of terror. So was BTK only in Wichita? Yes. Okay. Well, I, that general area. Yeah, I, I thought it like he was like nationwide. No. Okay. Um. So the first picture we have on our blog is BTK's signature, which we'll talk a little bit more about 
why he signed things later, but that looks like a pair of boobies. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. The, the B is made to look like a pair of boobs, and then you know the T and K are kind of intertwined with each other. And what it stood for, if you don't know, is bind, torture, kill. Yeah, I knew that. So let's just talk about who BTK was. Dennis Lynn Rader was born March 9th, 1945. He grew up with three younger brothers in Wichita, Kansas. His parents both worked. And so later on, Raider would say that he felt ignored by his parents, I guess, because they were working. Okay. But we're not talking about the typical things you hear about a serial killer. Right. He wasn't, as far as we know, he wasn't abused or molested or neglected or anything like that. Okay. Despite that, though... Dennis said he harbored sadistic sexual fantasies from a very young age. He would daydream about trapping and torturing women. He admitted to torturing and killing animals as a child. I mean, that's like hallmark sociopathy. He also admitted to participating in autoerotic asphyxiation, cross-dressing, and voyeurism. So do we need to break that down a little bit? Well, I know what that is, but I think maybe just so people don't have to go Google it. Well, cross-dressing is pretty obvious. I mean, he would dress himself up as a female. Right. Voyeurism, he was peeping Tom. Right. And, and then, then the autoerotic asphyxiation. So this is a person who it turned him on and excited him to basically to suffocate himself or yeah. others and you, th- and you see this during portrayed, sexual behavior and you see this portrayed in like movies and tv shows when the person has like a noose or a belt around their neck and they're choking themselves as they're doing the deed so mm-hmm. and that you're right that was just a form of pleasure right and he said he was particularly turned on by like ropes and bindings um and in fact even as like a young teenager, when he would masturbate, he would bind himself. That would turn him on. He became an expert, though, at hiding this whole side of himself because nobody had any idea. Which I got. Being able to hide that kind of shit as a teenager and under, mm-hmm. like, holy hell. Like, I couldn't hide a nudie mag from my mom very well, not alone stuff to, like, bind myself up. and Right. And especially, like... The killing of small ant like animals and shit like well, that. Well, think about it. He was born in 45. So he grew up, you know, 50s and 60s with three younger brothers in a rural setting where they went camping, hunting, and all these different things. It's amazing that his brothers did not know this side of him. Right. Amazing to me. You know, we watch shows like Evil Lives Here and they talk about these little subtle signs Nobody saw any subtle signs with Dennis Rader. Not really. Right. Dennis graduated from Wichita Heights High School and later attended Kansas Westland University. He only lasted a year in college, though, and he dropped out. So then he joined the United States Air Force, serving from 1966 to 1970. During his time in the service, he got to travel the world. He collected several collectibles, you know, stamps, uh, money, knickknacks, okay. things like that. I'm sure there's probably some sinisterness to some of those. Right. But nothing that, you know, just by him having them, you would be suspect. Okay. You know, I'm sure. I don't know. I, I tend to think that he probably was misbehaving during this time. We just don't know that. Right. You know, maybe not killing, but at least 
like spying or I don't know. Possibly. You know, he had already had all of these fantasies and stuff. He moved back to Wichita after the, his time in the service, and he started working at a local IGA in the meat department. So if you're not from the Midwest, IGA is a grocery store. Um, I don't know if they have those really outside the Midwest. Not really, but it's kind of like having a Piggly Wiggly and down in the South. So Right. He met and married Paula Dietz while he was working at IGA. They married on May 22, 1971. Dennis and Paula were church-going people. They were described as normal, polite, well-mannered. Totally not what you would think of when you think of a serial killer. Right. You know, a lot of times serial killers are divorced or they're not married or things like that. Like, he was happily married. They went to church every Sunday. Um, Dennis received an associate's degree in electronics in 1973 from Butler Community College. Following his schooling, he began installing alarm systems for ADT in 1974. So you want to talk about why that's so fucked up? Yeah, because he's the killer that's the installer for the security system. So Dennis Rader committed his first murder January 15th, 1974. After that date, sales for ADT boomed in the area and he was the installer. So while all these people are trying really hard to protect themselves from a serial killer, they're essentially inviting the killer into their house to install their security system. Right. And they're probably, he's probably having discussions about himself, Mm -hmm. like as, you know, the killer. Oh yeah. That's terrible. That thing that happened. Yeah. I can't believe that family died like that. I can't believe somebody like that lives in our area knowing good and well he He's the fucker doing it. And then he has all the, like, ability to access all of these new security systems. Right. So it makes it a moot point. Right. Fuck. Yeah. How ironic, right? On the morning of January 15th, 1974, Dennis Rader's twisted fantasies could no longer be contained in his brain. He, He couldn't take it anymore. And he decided to act on them. He entered the home of the Otero family when one of the two younger children, Joseph and Josie, opened the door to let the dog out. By this time, the older children had done had already left for school, but the two younger children were still at home getting ready for school. Dennis had seen Josie and Joseph before, and he chose these victims specifically. So what bothers me about this a lot is he chose the children as his victims specifically. So the parents were just a byproduct. Well, I think he knew Mrs. Otero would be home. I don't think he knew Mr. Otero would be home. Gotcha. As he entered the house, he held the family at gunpoint and tied them up. He realized at that point he didn't have a mask on to protect his identity. And so at this point, he decided he had to kill them. So that's like a leap, I guess, in his logic is, oh, I was just going to go in here and rape, you know, question mark. I guess. But since he's like, well, fuck, they know who I am. Well, then we're just going to have to. Right. So Dennis put a plastic bag over Mr. Otero's head first and he tightened it with cords And he did this inside the Otero's bedroom. Mr. Otero did not die immediately, though. So then in his confession, Dennis said, quote, I did, Mrs. Otero. I had never strangled anyone before. So I really didn't know how much pressure you have to put on a person or how long it will take. End quote. 
And he says this very casually, like he's talking about cooking a chicken. Yeah. He then strangled Josie, but Mrs. Otero and Mr. Otero started to wake up and fight back. So he thought they were dead, but they weren't. And so he put a bag over young Joseph's head like he had his father. And he placed another bag over Joseph Sr.'s head as well. Finally, he was able to kill Joseph Sr. He then strangled Mrs. Otero again, this time with a rope. So, like, he's Uh, definitely amateur at this point. Like, he doesn't 100% know what he's doing yet. Dennis said then he that he then took nine-year-old Joseph to another room and finished strangling him to death. That is when he realized that 11-year-old Josephine, known as Josie, was waking back up. So he thought he had killed Josie already, too. Jesus. I mean, he's really, at this point, not very good at his craft here. It's kind of a weird thing to be. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what I'm saying, though. I know, like, I get he's, it. He's inexperienced. Since she was not dead, he took the little girl to the basement and he hung her from the rafters. He then pleasured himself, receiving sexual gratification from watching the 11-year-old's body hanging. That's horrible. That's sick. So while Josie was not sexually assaulted, she was found with semen on her body. He then cleaned up a little bit. And he took Mr. Otero's watch and a radio. The murder of the Otero family was terrifying and, quite frankly, disgusting. The remaining Otero children were traumatized after this experience. Well, who the hell wouldn't be, you know? The Otero family had recently moved to Wichita from Panama because Mr. Otero had found a job in Kansas. Can you imagine you move your family into the United States for from, this job. From fucking Panama. And they get murdered. Shit. An article printed in the Wichita Beacon on January 21st, 1974, begged for tipsters to come forward, offering a reward and anonymity. So, I mean, this this article specifically says, like, you don't have to give your name. Please just call. They were desperate. They needed tips. Police believe the crime was committed by someone with a vengeance for the family, but they really couldn't identify any suspects. And I would probably think that, too. Like, who's going to kill four members of one family? Right. In such a brutal fucking way, too. Right. Like, it's not like they just came in there and shot them. Exactly. Like, there was... A lot of effort put into these murders. Right. And, like, even before his confession and everything, like... With the, what the police were going on. That's a lot of fucking effort to kill four members of the family. Exactly. And it was just a few months later on April 4th, 1974, that Dennis struck again. He broke into the home of Catherine Bright, a college student. When Catherine came home, she was with her brother, Kevin. Dennis was caught off guard by this. He didn't realize Kevin would be coming. He approached the brother and sister and told them that he needed their car. So he's holding them at gunpoint, basically saying, I'm here to get your car. He then tied them both up before moving Catherine to another room. He returned to the living room to strangle Kevin to death. But Kevin managed to get himself untied and started to fight against Dennis. 
Dennis was armed with a gun and he shot Kevin in the face. He then went back to Catherine, who was attempting, he was attempting to strangle. But that's when he heard some commotion in the other room. Even though he had shot Kevin in the face, Kevin was not dead. He was getting back up. And so Dennis shot him a second time in the head. Fucking Christ. Dennis attempted to shoot him again a third time, but the gun jammed. Miraculously, Kevin escaped the home despite two gunshot wounds to his head. Jeez. So with Kevin gone, Dennis is kind of in a panic and he returns to Catherine and he was unsuccessful at strangling her and he's getting panicked because somebody's left. So he's like, I can't get caught. So he grabs a knife and he starts to stab the young woman multiple times, making sure she was dead. And then he fled. Dennis described many of his crimes, including Catherine Bright's murder as a project. He said he followed and watched Catherine before the murder. He said, quote, I was just driving by one day and I saw her go into the house with somebody else. And I thought, that's a possibility. End quote. Jeez. So let's just stop right there. You just see someone randomly walking and you're like, oh, that's a possibility. I guess I might kill that person. Like, you've got to be sick in the head. Twisted. I mean, come on. That's insanity. Yeah. Kevin Bright miraculously survived. Can you believe that? Shot twice in the head and he survived. He had serious wounds, but he was actually able to provide a a description of the assailant and a sketch was made. But nobody could identify the, the person in this sketch. It was unclear to detectives if these murders were related at all to the Otero family because... There's just there's nothing to connect them, but at the same time, there's nothing to say they're not connected. And if you go to the website and look at the blog for this one, Gina has a picture of the sketch that was provided, and this looks like nothing like the BTK at all. Like it's just like it looks generic. It does. Like if you picture like a generic Hispanic male. In your mind, that's what this looks like. And BTK is not Hispanic. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, they always say eyewitnesses are actually pretty unreliable. Right. Um, And, I mean, not only was he an eyewitness, but he was shot twice in the head. So, right. I mean, I can't put too much blame on his... Right. I don't blame him at all for... Like, he gave him information, but the sketch artist must have had... Dealt with a lot of Hispanic people in their life because. Yeah. So in October of 74, after, you know, five murders that BTK has committed, the four Otero family um, members and then Catherine Bright and his assault on Kevin Bright, two men in prison allegedly confessed to the Otero murders. And Dennis did not like this. Like he did not want someone else taking credit. For what he had done. That's so strange that he made the jump in less than a year from just having deranged sociopathic or psychopath psychopath thoughts to 
killing he, five people. Killing five people. And, and getting, it would have been six. And getting pissed off because somebody else is taking credit for his work. Right. And he didn't like that. So he typed an anonymous letter to the Wichita Eagle telling them to look inside a specific book in the Wichita Library. The letter inside the book gave specific details of the Otero family murders, things that only the killer would know, things not released to the public. So they knew this was real. He described himself as, quote, having a monster inside his brain, end quote, and being motivated by factor X. Like, come on now. Like, at this at this point in the stage of the game, I I am believing that he was, like, he knew he was going to be a serial killer. Oh, yeah. And he knew, like, he was, like, he knew he was going to play this game with the cops. Yeah. Like, even before reading what was in the letter and shit like that, you had this already planned out in a very specific book that you probably knew that wasn't going to get checked out very often. Right. Like, and I guess maybe it was just those two guys that just kind of finally just said, here, here's a little push. Go over that edge. And well, and then he promised to kill again, explaining that he had already chosen his next victim. And in his letters to the media, he also asked to be called BTK, standing for Bind, Torture, Kill. He ended his letter with happy hunting. That's such an ominous fucking thing. Like he's playing a game with cops. He's like, like happy hunting. Ha ha ha. Like it, it's, it's weird because I know just enough of the story to get myself in trouble. And knowing that like the, all the stuff that we said in the past or already that he is, you know, a family man with a wife and two kids and he's a church going man mm-hmm. and he's an installer for an electronics or for a security company. This is like a true, like Dr. Jekyll kind of Mr. Hyde kind of right. thing. And at this you know? point he's married, but he didn't have kids just oh. yet. Well, just yet. Sorry. I didn't, I was skipping ahead. Sorry. But right. And like, you're like, Oh, happy hunting. I'm thinking like in more of his head, it's like, happy hunting right exactly like just that ominous like guttural feeling like it kind of makes your skin crawl Mm -hmm. like a god to be the cops that found this and read that last sentence it i I, i'm sure there had to be like like, i'm getting goosebumps and shit like chicken skin already just like thinking about it and just the chills running up and down my spine knowing that this man isn't done right yep god like was there, a, I guess we're probably going to talk about this, but where was there a task force assigned to? Oh, oh yes, very much. Okay. So. I'm, like, I mean, we're at the very beginning in stages, so we don't, need, we, like, we don't even know if these killings are associated right, yet. Right. But now I get fuck. Now well, I guess at this point, now they we connect do. them because he tells them things about both crime scenes. And despite him saying, like, I will kill again, I've already picked my next victim. BTK goes quiet for the rest of 1974 and 1975 and 1976. So police are baffled. They're wondering, like, was he dead? Was he in prison on something else? Did he move away? Is he killing people in another city? They didn't know what to think because, you know, he had just promised to kill again, saying he had picked out his victim. And then it's just like silence. And that, like, that's not typical for serial, like, do, like, I don't know enough. Serial killers usually have a cooling off period, but 
two and a half years would be a, a pretty extended. Right. I mean, because I knew that there, like, I know about the cooling off period. I didn't re- like that's fucking like yeah like wh- okay where's he at right like, exactly what the hell happened right and in reality Dennis was living right there in Wichita with his wife and his son who was born in 1975 so he got busy with fatherhood and had to take a break from being a serial killer basically. Paula expressed concern to her husband over the serial killer that was haunting their community. And Dennis assured her, like, you're fine. You'll be safe. I promise you'll be safe. God. God. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Like, like your wife is is scared of you, but doesn't know it's you. And you're, like, assuring her that everything will be okay. And just to know, like, after the fact, like, after he was caught. Right. Knowing that I, you're right, I was safe because I was hard, like. Or was she? I just, I don't, like, I don't. You know what I mean? Like, it's so crazy to think about that. I'm assuming her, like, wife and kids are fine, or his wife and kids are fine. Yes. Fuck. But she had no idea she was living with a serial killer. Not a clue. God, this, like, I don't, like, this kind of, this one's making my skin crawl just Mm -hmm. thinking about, like, all the creepy shit. Like, yeah, you're a fucking security installer. So that's a booming business because of, of you. you. You're playing this and you like had this all planned out, but you finally let it be known because of two people and you were pissed off that somebody they, else was getting credit, you know, and then your wife living with you being like, oh, I'm scared and being like, it's fine. You're safe. Like. That's what it's in my head. Yeah. Like, just that whole, like, uh, like ominous kind of monotone. You're safe. Yeah. It's, like, oh, it's God. Crazy. And I'm a six foot two, 300 pound dude. Like, Oh, it's only going to get worse. I know. On March 17th, 1977, five-year-old Steve Relford went to the local store to get a can of soup for his mom, who was homesick, Shirley Vian Relford. On the way home, Dennis stopped the boy and asked him to look at a picture. When Steve said he didn't know the person in the picture, Dennis said okay and sent him on his way. But Dennis was following the boy. And soon he knocked on the door. As soon as the little boy opened the door, Dennis just walked right in to the surprise of Shirley and her three children, two boys and a little girl. He ordered Shirley to put blankets and toys in the bathroom and lock the kids inside. As she was being held at gunpoint, she complied. Steve remembers being locked in the bathroom, but peeking through a small crack and watching BTK strangle his bound and naked mother face down on her bed. Steve's brother was desperate to get help, so he broke a bathroom window And this scared BTK off. So he exited quickly from the home. Right. Steve tried to save the life of his mother and untie the ropes, but he was a five-year-old boy and he was not successful. The broken window, though, likely saved the lives of the boys and the little girl. But it was too late for Shirley. When police arrived... Steve tried to describe the man, but his description was really vague and and not very helpful. Following the tragic events that day in 1977, Steve went on to suffer emotionally and mentally, turning to drugs and alcohol for comfort. 
And so I mentioned that because the repercussions of this weren't just on Shirley. Like, it stole so much more than a mother from her children. It stole their innocence in their life and right and like their mental health and as we're going through the story let's not forget the terror he was causing in this area right like it's not like it was just shit the the uptick in adt sales because people were scared right it's not like this was just like a random act of violence like like it's not like it's random violence that was being done this is calculated like in his mind, it's calculated. Right. He knows who his next victim's going to be. Now, I wonder if this was the same victim that he chose in the letter. So, no. So, later on, down the line, when he confesses, he said he actually had a different victim picked out. But when he went to their house that day, the lady was not home. So, then when he saw the little boy, he followed the little boy. Oh, jeez. So, she was, like, pretty random, actually fuck but there was still a plan though right and he probably would have killed the kids if he hadn't been scared off right on december 8th 1977 btk struck again dennis admitted that he had been stalking nancy fox finding out her name her routine her place of employment he parked his car two to three blocks away on the night of december 8th determined to finally put his plan into motion, another one of his projects. He cut her phone lines and then broke into her home and waited for her to return. When she got home, he told her, quote, I had a problem, a sexual problem, and that I would have to tie her up and have sex with her, end quote. That's directly from his confession. She said that Nancy was upset. Well, of course. And so he allowed her to smoke a cigarette. He said Nancy told him, quote, let's get this over with so I can go call the police, end quote. So she's essentially feeling like she's going to be raped, not thinking anything beyond that. He agreed, telling her to get undressed, and then he handcuffed her. Dennis admitted to tying her up, binding her legs above the knees, And this would become a signature he would use in many of his crimes. And if you think about it, if you tie them above their knees, they can still run and stuff. Yeah, they can still escape. So it's more about the pleasure for him of seeing them tied up, not so much about keeping them immobile. Right. Yeah, I think he kind of liked them to fight. It's creepy. He then climbed on top of her and then strangled her with a belt. After she was dead, he masturbated to the sight of her body before leaving. He then called 911 from a payphone to report the homicide to police. Now, did he report it as like anonymous or as BTK? He just called and said, you'll find a homicide at this address. Later down the line, his daughter would hear this recording and she was horrified because she instantly recognized her father's voice. Jeez. In early 1978, BTK wrote a letter to Cake Television, and I did check it is pronounced Cake, not K-A-K-E. Okay. It's Cake. Television station, which he watched every night with his wife, and he claimed responsibility for the murders of Joseph Otero, Julie Otero, Josephine Otero, Joseph Jr. Otero, 
Catherine Bright, Shirley Redford, and Nancy Fox. He demanded media attention. And he actually put in there, how many people do I need to kill to get on the national news? Fuck. Right? Like, he loves this attention. Fuck. And he's sitting at home with his wife, just enjoying the news coverage. Following the letter, Wichita police informed the public that there was a serial killer on the loose. Police began to communicate with BTK through television broadcast and newspaper ads, hoping to learn more about him. So they're like, well, if he wants to talk, we're going to try to keep him talking. So how did he communicate through newspaper ads? So they would he would write these letters to the media or to the police department and the police department would either put an ad in the paper to answer him or there would be a television broadcast about it jeez dennis and paula welcomed their second child a daughter carrie in 1978 he spent the next several years raising his children working and attending church with his wife he and Paula were very involved in the church. Dennis eventually served as president of the church congregation. Carrie remembers most of her childhood fondly, spending time dancing with her father and enjoying the outdoors. They liked to camp and they went on a pretty large hiking expedition in the Grand Canyon. Her mother, though, was more of an indoor person, but Dennis would take his children out to do the outdoor things. She did say that sometimes he had a temper, but nothing that they really found to be out of the ordinary. No one in Dennis's family had any clue what evil was inside of him. And that just kind of goes to show you about like sociopathic people that had these two different, like a hundred percent different lifestyles. Like you have a God-fearing man that's good with good to his wife, good to his kids. Like, the temper thing is something that makes me, like, he didn't have a, like, he had a temper, but it wasn't normal. Like, it was normal. But he wasn't, like, abusive. Right. Like, I'm sure he had, like, the wait till your father come home kind of, you know, attitude. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything near as deranged or crazy as the shit that he's doing to these people. So, I read his daughter Carrie Rawson's book, and... From what I can tell, with the exception of a couple things that we'll talk about later, he never even spanked his children. So when we're talking about temper, we're not talking about an abusive man. Right. I'm sure it's... We're talking about the dad temper. Right. That probably all of our dads had. My dad sure as hell had it. My dad too. You know, so we're not talking about anything crazy out of the ordinary here. You know, he was not abusive. He was good to his family. He was good to his parents as they aged. He was... Good to his brothers and their families and his in-laws. He was a leader in the church. Right. Like, dang. Like, that's ridiculous. This, like, I can't believe that it's taken me this long to hear this whole story. Yeah. So later on, Dennis did admit that in 1979, while he was, you know, in a cooling off period, or at least to what everybody thought... He did try to commit the murder of a 63-year-old woman named Anna Williams. He broke into her home, but the woman stayed out really late. And so he gave up and left. And he later told authorities that the incident made him absolutely livid. And really just, like, he was just pissed off because she didn't come home when he wanted her to come home. 
And so between that time and 1985, he didn't commit any murders. So a six-year cooling-off period. Yeah. So now we're in multiple decades. Right. 74 to... God, that's 11 years time frame so far. Right. I mean, he, he took very long cooling-off periods. And it's weird that we talk about it like that. Mm-hmm. That it's called like, and that's the term for it is a cooling off period for kill, like for serial killers. Like yep. that's just so weird. Like, and I know I'm saying like a lot. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just kind of flustered tonight. He, I'm catching him off guard. He didn't realize how much meat was to this story. On April 27th, 1985, Carrie remembers being at home with her mother. Her father was not home that night. And that was the night that their neighbor, Maureen Hedge, disappeared. Dennis called Marie Hedge, Hedge's murder Project Cookie. He would later tell authorities. Did he ever say why he called it that? No. But here's the fucked up part. So Dennis was on a Boy Scout troop camping trip with his son. I'm telling you, serial killers and Boy Scouts. I'm sorry, Boy Scouts, but... So far, just about everyone we've covered yeah, was a but Boy Scout or involved did, in the Scouts. So I did do some research. There's not as many as you think. It sure seems like it. It seems like it, but there's not as many as you think. So he was actually on a camp out with his son's Boy Scout troop. He left the campgrounds and took his car to a bowling alley once the boys were asleep. He then, from the bowling alley took a cab to Park City, Kansas, where he was living with his family, and he brought his murder kit inside a bowling bag. What the hell? Like, he has a murder kit now? Yeah. And so he, I mean, like, he had this planned because he planned it where he'd have an alibi. In his confession, Dennis said, quote, I was going to have sexual fantasies, so I brought my hit kit. And lo and behold, her car was there, and I thought, gee, she's not supposed to be home. So I very carefully snuck into the house. She wasn't there. So about that time, the doors rattled, so I went went back to one of the bedrooms and hid there in one of the bedrooms. She came in with a male visitor. They were there for maybe an hour or so, and then he left. I waited till the wee hours of the morning, I then proceeded to sneak into her bedroom, flip on the lights real quick like, or I think the bathroom lights. I just, I didn't want to flip her lights on. And she screamed. And I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually, end quote. What the hell? This is his neighbor. His neighbor. And then knowing that he was in the house. Oh, God. This is the creepiest shit, like, we've done so far. Uh-huh. Like, as far as me personally. Yeah, there's other things that are are more sinister as far as creepy factor. Yeah, like, for real. this is why I, I want to carry a gun and have, like, guns all over, like, fuck. So after killing Marine Hedge, Dennis wrapped her in a blanket and put her in the back of his car and took her to his church. He brought her corpse into the same church he attended with his family on Sundays and proceeded to position her in different positions, photographing her body. What the fuck? Inside the church. Church. That's some weird fucked up shit. 
Yep. Like, there's fucked up and then there's fucked up on another level. And yep. this is on the umpteenth level of fuckery. And yep. I, I'm sorry, I'm saying fuck again. Gina's catching me off guard, guys. I made sure to not be a, like to not read anything or look at anything or do anything with this at all before we did this. Like I knew a little bit, like I knew who, like who he was. I didn't know any of the story and this is fucked up. Yep. So yeah, I'm going to have to put a retrograde content warning on this, (laughs) on this one. So when he was done, he dumped her body in a ditch her remains were found days later on May 5th, 1985. So, mind you, when he's done with all this, he then proceeds to go back to the campground and lay back down next to his son and the Boy Scouts like nothing ever happened. On December 30th, 1988, Mary Fager of Wichita returned home to find her husband and two daughters dead. Melvin Fager was shot twice in the back. Nine-year-old Sherry was found naked and strangled in the bathtub. 16-year-old Kelly had been tied up with electrical cords and drowned. Police automatically thought, well, this is BTK. That doesn't sound like him at all, though. Like, just knowing his MO, like the drowning is what gives it away for me. Well, but she was tied up with electrical cords. She was bound. So they thought immediately like this has got to be btk and so they said that in the media and again this pissed dennis off so he wrote a letter using his alias btk and said he was not responsible for the fager family murders but he said that he admired the work of the killer like it's art or something that's so fucked up like it, it just popped in my head there probably are people that are fawning over serial killers. Like, I admire that work. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very few percentage of the population. But I'm sure that, the, like, even now, I'm sure there's people like, I admire that. That's, I'm going to put that in my mental, my mental check, my mental notebook to be like, I might do that one later. Creepy as fuck. A handyman who had been working at the Fager home was suspected and found days later driving the family's vehicle. He was charged but acquitted of the murders based on lack of evidence and witnesses. So the crime has never been solved, but police still believe the handyman was responsible and they no longer believe that this was a BTK crime. On September 16th, 1986... Dennis pretended to be a telephone repairman and entered the home of 28-year-old Vicki Workerly. He pulled a gun on Vicki and he later said of the crime, quote, I told her I was going to have to tie her up. She was very upset. And I think we, I, used some material that was in, and that's another thing. I'm not sure, but I used the material that they had in their bedroom and... After I tied her hands, she broke that and started fighting. We fought quite a bit back and forth. End quote. He is just so deranged. Mm hmm. He then proceeded to strangle Vicky with a nylon sock. He positioned her body and took pictures 
like he had of Marine Hedge. At least he didn't bring her to the church. And then he fleed the scene. Police believed that her husband had killed Vicky, but there was never enough evidence to charge him. Jeez. So. Could you imagine having that stigma on your, like, being part of your personality until they caught BTK and he, like, all the confessions? Like, the whole town, everybody you know. They all thought he was the killer. killer. And so. He didn't take pictures of all of them, right? It was only these past two that he had. Correct. Like, is that something that he continued to do? I'm guessing because he's like, oh, I can get, I can get gratification later from, yeah, and maybe sustain, and maybe sustain the cool, the like the cooling off periods. I don't Fuck. know. I don't think he ever was that interested in in stopping. He would later explain his cooling off periods were more convenience. Not so much like, you know, like when you talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, sick as can be, but like one of the reasons he was trying to put acid in their brains and stuff is he was trying to keep somebody that he could keep longer so that he wouldn't have to kill somebody again. Right. Like, I'm not saying he felt remorse, but he tried to at least reduce the amount of killing he had to do right btk was more about just what was convenient right because I'm, I'm noticing that the cooling off periods are lining up with when his kids are born yeah so it's when it's convenient and then there was a cooling off period again of about five years and then in 1991 on january 19th dennis once again left a boy scout event to kill Hey, it was a good alibi. I'm not trusting any dads at Boy Scout events. Right? He snuck into the home of Dolores Davis. He strangled her to death with pantyhose. He then dumped her body, and her body was found February 1st, 1991. After killing Dolores Davis, he wrote two letters anonymously to her family, claiming that he believed the same man probably killed Maureen Hedge, Vicki Wergley, and Dolores Davis. What the f- So he's sick because he wrote these letters to um, this woman's sons, like as a concerned person, like, you know, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I bet you it's the same killer. This, the son was automatically suspicious and firmly believed this was the killer communicating with him. Jeez. What a yeah. fucked up. It's one thing, um, none of it's okay, but it's one thing to communicate with the media and the police. But another but you, thing to fuck it with the family. Right, exactly. You've got to be really twisted. BTK communicated several times with the media, the Wichita Eagle and Cake Television station in particular. He would include sketches, detailed descriptions of his crimes, and continued promises that he would kill again. He even wrote a poem about the murder of Shirley that he entitled Shirley Locks. He took sick pleasure in terrifying the Kansas community. In his letters, he talked about the enormous amount of pleasure that he took in killing his victims, both the adults and the children. Like, I know, like is a crappy filler word to use, but... Could you imagine being the Wichita Eagle and Cake Television? No. At this point, like this is what I'm. 
this is the situation I'm putting in my head. We are now known for being the communication vector of BTK. So you want to hear something creepy? Huh. In one of the documentaries I watched, one of the cake television news anchors, she was talking about a time when her and her co-anchor both had a little bit of cold of a cold and they mentioned it. And then a couple days later, they get a letter from BTK and he's like, oh, I'm sorry about your guys' colds. So they knew he was watching. What the hell? Creepy. God. It, and and so their I'm, thought is like, are we next? Well, and I'm sure that this is going to sound fucked up. I'm sure part of the, like, the executives' minds are like, this is gold. People are buying our paper and tuning into our station because... We have unfettered access to the BTK letters, and we are the communication source that we are. They, he's using, and ratings couldn't be higher. Creepy. I would, I would like to see like. I don't. I, there's probably no kind of freaking way to find it, but like, rating spikes, to this particular station, whenever the killings came out. And like dip down again. Yeah. Like if there was, I don't know. if traffic would like just stay like stay the same throughout, or if oh when BTK was definitely when he was active, active, boom, like it skyrocketed. Oh, I'm sure it did, just as it would if any murder was committed. You know, God, people are still, gonna want to see the news news coverage of it. Having the the ability to be as fucked up as this, and as and still be put together right like i see photos of him and i you know we're coming up to some of the the real good photo like recent or not recent but you know older photos of him mm-hmm. when, when all this was really happening it's like you don't look like a killer no but yet you have this weird like this perverted sense of everything Mm-hmm. Of the world around you, of the way things work, and yep, for sure. And like I said earlier, while the news stations were talking about these communications from BTK, Dennis Rader was sitting at home with his wife and children watching the news, and his wife and children had no clue that he was the serial killer terrorizing the community. He reveled in this attention and fame. And he asked to be compared to other serial killers like Son of Sam, the Hillside Strangler, and Jack the Ripper. But then after 1991, BTK just kind of stopped. It just sort of went away. Police were no closer to solving the crimes and had not even connected all 10 murders yet. After more than a decade with no murders, no communication... Generally, the task force was broke up and they believe BTK had either died, had been put in prison for a different crime, or had moved out of their area. There was nothing. I mean, he just stopped completely. All communication, all crimes. The cases were never closed, but they did go cold. So during this 10 years of nothing... Dennis hadn't left that area. He was right there in the Wichita area, raising his children, hiking the Grand Canyon, and serving as a leader in his church. His daughter married in 2003 with her father proudly walking her down the aisle. 
In her book, A Serial Killer's Daughter, Carrie describes growing up with a father who was very loving to her. He did have some oddities, times when his family knew that they should just listen to him and not challenge him. But really, whose dad isn't like that? My dad was like that. Like, you knew certain things, you just don't argue with him. Right. He's in a bad mood, you just leave it alone, do what he wants. Right. He never considered himself to be a victim of abuse. And, you know, his children never felt that way either. But his daughter did recall when her father was not real empathetic and lost his temper over some seemingly minor situations. And then on two occasions, he choked her older brother during altercations. Okay, so that's obviously not okay. And that's getting right. a little extreme. But I would never jump to from that to, oh, my dad is a serial killer. Right. I'd be like, oh, he got pissed off and they got into it. I never would think of it like that. And this was something her family never talked about after those incidents happened either. But Carrie said she was never afraid of her father. Quite the opposite. Like he was the dad's dad, like t reminding her to check her oil, reminding her, you know, to put a broomstick in her sliding glass door. Right. Different things like that. So, you know, just totally insane. Right. In 2004, the media covered the 13th, 30th rather anniversary of the Otero family murders. 30 years. The crime had grown cold, but the coverage reignited Dennis Rader's need for attention and notoriety. He began to send communications once again to Cake Television and the Wichita Eagle newspaper. In March 2004, the Wichita Eagle received a letter from a man calling himself Bill Thomas Kilman, signed with the BTK initials. He included photographs from Vicki Wergerly's crime scene and her driver's license. Gee, I mean, I guess he had to prove that it wasn't like a copycat or somebody trying to right. get the fame. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. So now BTK was back and the community was scared. God, and all those people thinking, oh, he's fucking dead or in jail or, you know, something. And then just to be like, ha ha ha. Like, this is a bad Freddy fucking movie. Mm -hmm. Like, you think you killed the son of a bitch or then the son of a bitch is dead. But like every time. Nope. He just comes nope. Back. He just comes back. Following this letter in 2004. Of course, the community's refilled with fear. They believe Kate that BTK was living in the Wichita community and would once again kill. In May 2004, Cake Television received a letter with chapter headings for a book called The BTK Story, as well as fake IDs and a word puzzle that later, when examined again, the word puzzle not only included the names of some of BTK's victims, but actually his family's names were in there, too. Oh, shit. But nobody put that together because they weren't He looking. was getting kind of brazen, though. Yes, for real. Like, I mean, I understand. This is a man that has lost all touch with reality in this aspect. Like, he is, when you start, like, brazenly, like, he, like, what did he say? at the beginning happy hunting yeah 
Like he's like motherfuckers. Like I'm still like. I'm. Well, at this point, he's got thirty years of confidence that they're not going to catch right. him. So now he's like, Mother- I can fuck with them all I want. I mean, they haven't caught me yet, and it's been thirty years. Right. Um, police wanted to catch him like ASAP before he committed another crime. They tested the DNA from Vicky Wergerly's murder in comparison to the semen found at the Otero murders and the murder of Nancy Fox. What they found was that all three crime scenes had the same DNA. So now they have a DNA profile. Now, mind you. That's something he wasn't worried or he wasn't. Dennis Rader probably still ain't worried about that. He's a church going guy in his late what? 60s by this point yeah and you know his kids are grown and he's never been in in trouble he's never been arrested in his whole life like he ain't worried about dna how the hell are they going to connect him this motherfucker killed 10 people and had a whole life yep like he had a whole life yep so now they have btk's dna but they still don't know who to compare it to and again he's not in the system In October of 2004, a manila envelope was dropped off to a UPS box in Wichita. Inside were images of bondage, terror, and torture of children. A poem inside threatened the lives of the investigators in the case. In December of 2004, another package was left for police in a park. Inside was Nancy Fox's driver's license and a doll that was bound with a plastic bag over her head. So he took this doll, like a Barbie doll, and he bound it almost identical to the way Nancy Fox was found. Jeez. In January 2005, Dennis attempted to leave a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck at a local Home Depot. He would later joke that he chose cereal boxes because he was a serial killer oh fuck yeah dad jokes right on in here jeez the owner of the truck though discarded the box in his trash like not worried about you know what it represented i mean he was just probably thinking somebody tossed their trash in the back of his pickup right he wasn't worried about anything um so he the message didn't get to police right away dennis was enjoying this game of cat and mouse with the police though and he was aggravated when this message was not received. See, he knew when they got his messages because they would respond in the media to him to keep him talking. So when he got aggravated, his message wasn't received. He wrote some more postcards to Cake Television telling them where to find the package. The owner of the truck was eventually found and the box was still in his garbage, which he had forgotten to take out on trash day. Jeez. Ironic, right? Yeah, that's ironic. The surveillance tape at the Home Depot showed a Jeep Cherokee, but the image of the man dumping the box was too grainy to be useful. Inside the cereal box, an additional and an additional cereal box left in February were two more bound dolls. Like he's just pushing the buttons. He's just like te- having like, fun with them. Right. He's enjoying it. In his letters to police, Dennis asked if he could send a floppy disk without it being traced back to him. He asked the police to be honest. The police responded via an ad in the paper that said everything would be all right. 
On February 16, 2005, police received a floppy disk sent to a media outlet from BTK. Police found metadata on the floppy disk containing the words Christ Lutheran Church and the name Dennis. People don't like it. it I guess it's just because I'm in IT and the tech spec that people don't. He was born in the 1940s. He obviously wasn't up on his technology. And to find the cops, sure, Dennis. Well, that's hint, pretty much what they did. They said, sure. Hint, hint, wink, wink, send us whatever you want. Well, and you, that's pretty much what they did. Go. Hoping fuck, that he would say. Fuck up? Yeah. And, oh, God. So, using the church name and Dennis, they went to the internet and they found that the president of the church council was a man named Dennis Rader. That is the only reason they found him. Is because of the floppy, floppy disk. Damn. Police started surveillance on Dennis, who drove a Jeep Cherokee, which was identical to what was seen um, dumping the box at the store. And Dennis was like an upstanding member of the community. So they're surveilling him, but they're like, this dude goes to lunch with his wife every day. He works in the church like this was circa good circumstantial evidence but nothing that could really tie him to the murders for all they knew he could even just be a kook sending weird stuff right but i don't know about that because he had their driver's licenses and shit right but they didn't have enough to arrest him yet police determined that they would need dna to positively tie dennis Rader to the btk murders and they did something that depending on how you look at it, is a little iffy. They got a court order to obtain slides from a pap smear that his daughter had done at the campus health center at her college. I don't agree with this. Uh, like, it's a little iffy to me. No, like that's, that's see, an invasion of her privacy. This is a whole lot iffy to me. I understand that you need DNA to make the match. I get it. Like I, I've but watched, she provided that under the under assumption the, that it was protected health information. Yeah, like we have HIPAA for a fucking reason, right? Like you know how many court documents I have, like had to make ready and redact shit, like names, social security numbers, like all the shit you have to redact for HIPAA policy. Whenever you have to turn shit into a lawyer, this is. I, <laughs> I told you I'm, it was iffy. Like, I'm like glad this, that they I'm caught it, him. I'm glad they but... caught him. But there should have been... There's other ways to get DNA. And I will tell you, even though his daughter is glad that he was held responsible for his crimes, she felt very violated and rightfully so. Yeah. Because, like, there's so many protections in place to protect that kind of information right. from getting out... Like, I understand, like, I get the, like, this is a delicate advocate, but I'm leaning toward the other way. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I get why the cops needed the DNA. But for them to get a court order and a judge writing off and saying, yeah, it's okay. Go steal this pap smear from a, a person that is no, has no ties to this connection. The only tie they have is that she's a daughter of the person that we, that we think, that we think. You don't know if that's the real person yet. Right. You would think 
I'm maybe this just happens on TV, but you would think if they were tailing him, he would have thrown out a coffee cup or right a piece of gum or something like that. But right, or if you had enough evidence, is there a, like why couldn't you get a court order for him to come in? I don't know if they would have had enough. I don't know though. They had enough to apparently take his daughter's pap right. smear though. Right. If you have enough, inf- like if you have enough evidence to be like, this is we need the DNA of this female that is we don't think is the person, but is related to the person that we think does it or did it. Then you have enough. Then I think you should have it. Like, there's enough evidence there to be like, no, just take it from the person. So I'm gonna tell you with forensic genealogy which we're going to talk about more this season. Like I did ancestry DNA. If there's a comparison, they can they are now run it through things like 23 and me and ancestry DNA for familial matches to find criminals. That's a regular thing now. But here's the thing. On 23 and me and ancestry on ancestry.com, you have to sign a waiver. No, I get that. Like I get that sign, it's not the same you thing. You sign a piece of paper that says, I'm giving them the right to put this into a database and it can be used for like those reasons. Right. Like she went to her doctor. No, I like, get it. Check me for cancer and shit because I'm a good human and I'm getting this done because I enjoy my health. And that, and the, you know, the doctor had no say in this at all. No, I know. I, I agree. I'm glad they found him, but I'm not real comfortable with right. how. The DNA comparison between Dennis's daughter's DNA and DNA from the crime was a familial match. Dennis Rader was positively identified as BTK 32 years after he started killing. On the morning of February 25th, 2005, Police arrested Dennis Rader as he was driving to meet his wife for lunch. Upon apprehending him, police asked him if he knew why they were arresting him. And he said, quote, oh, I have suspicions. Why? End quote. To the horror of the family that loved Dennis Rader, Dennis soon confessed in horrific detail to all 10 murders. He was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. At the encouragement of his family, Dennis pled guilty to all charges. His wife was granted an emergency divorce and cut off all communication with him. I mean, you can't blame her. No, I don't blame her at all. So during his interrogation, when they told him how they found him, he was like, oh, why'd you guys lie to me? And, like, he seemed genuinely surprised. Like, he was thought of this was, like, social communication. He was having fun with the police. Not, it's like it didn't even register to him that they weren't enjoying it as much as he was. Like, why would they do something to catch him and stop it? Weird, right? Yeah. Police learned Dennis Rader had been working as a compliance officer for the city of Park City, Kansas. His office was just down the hallway from the police station. Damn. He was also a Boy Scout leader and president of the church's congregation. I I really have to go back and redo my research on the whole Boy Scout thing. 
I'm telling you. Like we, I'm, this I, is like the fourth or fifth serial killer we've covered. That's gonna be something I I make on my own time and then put for like a Patreon, right? Like post. Dennis told police where they could find trophies from his crimes. Some were in the file cabinet in his office, you know, right by the police station, while others were under the floorboards in his family's home. There were also pictures of Dennis himself in various states of bondage and cross-dressing. He provided both a confession and a plethora of evidence proving that he was, in fact, the notorious BTK. Now, this is one of the things, like, whenever you're doing research for this, you're watching a documentary. And it was with, uh, I believe, the police officers that were, like, in charge of the investigation and stuff. like. And they were talking about the photos and stuff like that. Yeah. And they showed the massive pile, like, mounds. Like, it wasn't just like he kept, like, one or two trinkets and photos. There was mounds of photos yes. that this man had taken of this and you look at him and you look at the photos and you're like you really don't know what people are no like and you want to hear something creepy so he had always been a collector of stamps like tons and tons of stamps so it would not be unusual for him to have like the magnifying eyeglasses on and like tweezers and stuff out like doing stuff working on his stamp collection right but his daughter later was like i bet you some of that time he was creating the btk letters because he usually they weren't handwritten right they were like scraps of newspaper like oh, collage and she's like i bet you i was there while he was writing one like creating some of these communications but we just thought he was working on his stamp collection fuck further dna testing proved dennis Rader was in fact the serial killer known as btk in august of 2005 dennis Rader was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years in prison. Now, did they take off the... like ex, like? I don't believe Kansas had the death penalty at the time the crimes were committed. Okay. Is from what I could understand. So is that how it... I, this is such a weird case because it spans 30 fucking years. Right. Do they go by if the death penalty was... At the time of the crime. At the time of the crime, not by whenever you're sentenced. Correct. Correct. Fuck. Dennis provided great detail about each of his crimes at his sentencing hearing with no remorse. And many of the, like almost all of the quotes that I've shared with you today are from his sentencing hearing where he basically just gave this big long speech that the judge compared to an Academy Awards speech. He described his victims, comparing them to members of his own family, saying things like, you know, uh, Josie Otero was a little girl. I had a little girl, like basically trying to humanize himself. And most people found it just disgusting and despicable. He demonstrated extreme narcissism and said, quote, I am just a good man who did bad things, end quote. Just a good man who did bad things. Really, dude? You killed 10 people. Right, like including that's including two children. I'm a good man that do, does bad things. Is a man that like forgets to like doesn't pay his taxes because he wants more money for his family. Right, like you're a horrible man that did monstrous things. Right. 
In letters to his daughter, Dennis described his brothers and other family as unchristian for cutting off communications with him and not being able to forgive him. So this narcissist is sitting here in prison for killing 10 fucking people, including two children, calling his siblings unchristian because they don't want anything to do with him. And if they were Christian-like, they'd forgive him. Like, seriously, what level of narcissism does that take? Right. You've got to be just... Oh. Fucked in the head. Mm-hmm. Like you are high on your own, like high on your own piss. If you think like, and it's like it's hard because as Christians, you're supposed to be taught, oh, you you know, you hate the sin but forgive the sinner. You know what I'm saying? This is really hard because there is so like there was no remorse shown. Like I can. Even if he expected them to forgive him, like he started writing these letters very quickly right after he was caught with like seemingly no empathy for what they were going for, going through, or like the fact that maybe they needed time or maybe they wouldn't forgive him or maybe they forgave him, but they just don't want to communicate with it. Like he seems to have no sense of anybody else's thoughts or feelings. None. And this was the first time his family really got to see this side of his personality, this sadistic narcissist side. They were devastated and they basically mourned him as if he was dead. Right. Because the person they knew was dead. And I think I would too. At Like we, we have had this discussion thousand and one times, you know, if a family member, if we had a family member that did something like that, I don't think I could forgive them. But even if you do, I just, you're still mourning. And I don't, he didn't understand that. He couldn't wrap his head around the fact that his, you know, now ex-wife and his, his children and his brothers and his mother was still alive at that time. He couldn't wrap his head around the fact that they're mourning the loss of the man they knew who was not the real Dennis Rader. You know, the dad she grew up with, the dad she danced on his right. toes, you know, on his feet. That was at her wedding. Right. Gave her away at her wedding. Like, she's mourning him because he's gone. And now her dad is an infamous serial killer who will spend the rest of his life in prison. And really, like, her dad really wasn't there. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, he, I believe that he was a sociopath that had the facade of a church man oh i agree i agree completely like it's not like oh he's a church man that was a serial killer in the dark no right he's not a good man who did bad things he's a bad man who faked good life that's a that's a perfect way to put it yep and you know what i don't want to get away from is that You know, his daughter talks a lot about how, like, things that people have said to her, like, that her dad should fry, that, you know, just, like, things like that. She's like, that stuff still bothers me because he's still my dad. But at the same time, I'm disgusted by everything and I question everything he's ever said to me now. Right. What was true? Right. And so, you know, if you just put yourself in her position for a minute. Yeah. She's a victim. Just, I mean... Oh, yeah. She's a victim. Oh, yeah. She may not have been brutalized, but emotionally she was. Dennis is currently housed at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. He's under solitary confinement for his own protection. 
He's allowed out of his cell for one hour per day. As of 2006, he is allowed to have a television, radio, and access to magazines. That is what I think is wrong. This is someone who enjoyed the media attention so much. So you give him all the media. And you're letting him have access to the media. Right. The families of Raiders victims continue to suffer unimaginable pain associated with the traumatic loss of their loved ones. His family also suffers as they come to grips with the realization that the man they loved and trusted had betrayed them in the worst possible way. Yeah. In February of 2023, Dennis Raider told the media he felt sorry for suspected killer Brian Koberger. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. He is awaiting trial for the four murders of the college kids in Idaho. I'm sure you guys have seen this on the media. He said that he was sympathetic for Brian as he awaits trial in, um, in solitary confinement because he said, you know, I know what that's like and it's really lonely. So his his only empathy is for another serial killer or suspected gonna be a serial killer. Right. Brian was a student of Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a criminology professor at Washington State University and she is also the leading academic authority on the BTK crimes. So it's thought that Dennis Rader may have inspired Brian. Damn. Yeah. Dennis Rader also emailed TMZ explaining that he sees similarities in Brian and himself. He states that they both have dark minds who are drawn to kill. So he's still like. Narcissistic. It's crazy to me. You see a story like that and the only empathy you can find is with the killer. Right. Like, that's what's crazy. I have a full list on the website of BTK's victims, as well as my references, which include the daughter of a serial killer by Carrie Rawson. I highly recommend it. It's a great read. Um, and this list is, is huge because I, I did a pretty darn deep dive into this case. Well, when you go to find, when you're doing like a infamous serial killer, like you got to do your due diligence. Right. I didn't realize this story is as fucked up as it was. Yeah. And just to think about this, like he didn't, the last murder he committed was in 1991. Right. He would have likely lived the rest of his life never being caught. If he would have just shut the fuck up. He couldn't help it. He had to get that attention. And he had to send that one floppy disk. He enjoyed that attention so much. He just couldn't help himself. Fuck. And I'm sure he was laughing all the way, being like, it's 30 years. They've never caught me. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Like I said, this man lived a whole ass life, had kids, watched marriages, had a, had a career, yeah. made money. And like now he's just like he's in a retirement home by himself. Right. And poor Carrie. Like, I feel so sorry for his daughter. She has, since his arrest, become a mother. And she's like. Someday I have to tell my children who their grandfather is. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? You don't. I mean, they're going to find out. Yeah. All they got to do is look up their mother's name and it. It's true. It's going to be everywhere. But she's like, oh, 
I feel so sorry for obviously the victims and their families. I feel a lot of empathy for Carrie and her family and for his poor wife that had no idea. Had no fucking clue. She was married to this man the entire time and had no clue. Right. You know, and then the little boy that watched his mom get killed, that just broke my heart. Yeah. And the documentary I watched, he's all grown now, but you can tell he's had a rough life and he talks about his battles with substance abuse and addictions. And well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I would have a substance abuse too if I watched that kind of shit happen. Right. Just the trauma. Like that story broke my heart into so many pieces. And in the documentary, um, which I think is on, go, can you go to my references so I don't misquote it? Um, but it's on Discovery Plus. It's called BTK Chasing a Serial Killer. Charlie Otero is on there too, describing the day that he found his parents and learned of his younger siblings. Fuck. You know, he didn't see them, thank God, but, right. you know, learning about that. And it's just to see these victims, it's just heart wrenching. And, you know, even for me, who, you know, obviously I'm researching true crime all the time. Right. This one, the victims, the families, like it just really broke my heart more so than other stories, not all other stories, but a lot of them. And I, I don't know why that is really, but it, I don't know. it really bothered me because I'm hearing well, their stories and how 30 some years later and now, I mean, it's almost been 50 years, right? Um, It'll be 50 years next year since the Otero murders. And it still has these lasting effects. Like, this stuff still, doesn't stop. No, and it's still a story that just sends chills down your spine. Because you realize that people aren't always who they say they are. No. And you can never really know a person's true identity. Right. You know, as much as we like to say, oh, I know that person like the back of my hand. Do you really? Because I'm sure... Dennis's wife was like, "Oh, he's such a good man." Oh, I'm sure. I know. I know. I, my my husband could never do that. His and I'm sure that daughter they're... trusted him with every fiber of her being. Like she thought the the FBI when they showed up and told her she right she thought they were crazy. Right. You know, it's just it's it's insane. ridiculous. It's crazy um, because I'm a little crazy too. I did write a letter to Dennis Rader, and I don't know. We'll see if he writes back. I kind of played to his narcissistic ego yeah, in hopes that he would write back. I mean, he's emailing TMZ. Why the hell not us? Right. So, Well, we're not TMZ. I know. I'm just making a point. But I know. We'll see if he actually responds back. If he does, um, that's something we'll share with our Patreon yep. supporters on all levels. Yep. So. Um, hopefully you guys enjoyed this story. Yeah, I know I had a good time hearing it. Like, well, not a good time. Like, I know what you mean. Like, let's a not true, get into a, a true crime fascination. Good time, right? Not I mean, a enjoy because I want. It's the psyche. It's the psyche. Stuff. I want to be in his. I want to be in a room with him to talk to him, being like, "How are you feeling?" Like, let's have a discussion. Like, I wish the guy from. Uh, God, what's it? That show that I like. Mind Hunter? Yes. Could have time with him. 
Um, I believe that John Douglas did interview him at some point after his arrest, and I believe there's a Mindhunter episode about him. I'll have to I'll have to go relook because. I, I could be mistaken, but I think there is. God, I, um, and I, I know there's a Law & Order SVU episode that was like... Loosely based. Loosely based. I mean, they're all if, loosely based. They never follow anything exact. If but. I was 20 years old again with the knowledge that I have in my head, I would want to go into like criminal psychology. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is. Like, what makes somebody a serial killer? Right. And obviously the things we usually talk about abuse yep. neglect sexual abuse but none of that happened yeah with this one no as right. far as anybody knows he was never abused right. or neglected it seems like this was more of a nature yeah instead of nurture this was nature he was yeah. born sick and he's still yeah. sick all right guys like we said before, if you want any more information on this case or any case that we have covered, go to themidwestcrimefiles.com. You can find all the blog posts that are associated with each one of our podcasts and all the references that Gina has used in that. You can also help us keep this podcast going by going to Patreon and subscribing. You can go from anywhere from $1 to I think 10 or $20. You and- can actually give whatever you want. Um, but our gold level is 10, our silver level level is five and our bronze level is a dollar. Right. We're not, we're not expensive, but we try to keep the the lights on, on this podcast. But I think with that, I am going to go take a shower and get this nastiness (laughs) off of me and we will see you guys next week. All right. Bye. Bye.